Hey, what's going on? Welcome to The Doug Show. My name is Doug Cunnington, and in this episode, we're going to talk to Ashley. Ashley is a student in multi-profit site, which is fantastic, but she actually emailed me before she enrolled. It's pretty cool because in June of 2020, she hit, I think, just short of $1,000 per month. The other cool part is she actually emailed me in the middle of June and she was like, in May, I hit $500 per month. And I told myself that I was going to email you, Doug, to thank you once I hit that point. So this is a really cool, cool episode, you know, being able to, you know, talk to Ashley, hear her story directly from her and pretty cool thing. Her and I both kind of got started around 2013 I somehow got super obsessed with niche sites and affiliate marketing and had a little bit more free time and flexibility. And Ashley tells us about her journey. She didn't, you know, hit, hit it off as quickly as I did in 2013, but she persevered and stuck with it. So we talk about her approach to keyword research We talk about her missteps and some mistakes that she's made in the past. We talk about her content approach and some actually pretty significant tips that I usually don't give specifically. But when she mentioned it, I was like, oh man, that's actually a great idea. I should probably be doing that as well. So Ashley's story is very inspiring and I want to thank her for taking the time and, you know, sharing her story with me and with you. And actually before I send it to the interview, I do want to mention a couple other things. So number one, she actually sent a couple bullet points here, and it's worth it to note that in May, when she hit the $500 mark, that was still when her commission rates dropped dramatically. Some people weren't impacted as much, but generally she went from 8 to 3%, and she still made over 500 bucks. And one of the other huge points is, She points out specifically in the email she sent to me, my journey has not been a quick success. It took her 10 to 11 months just to make $50 per month. She did figure out some mistakes that um, she messed up on, and hopefully you'll be able to avoid those mistakes yourself. Hey, what's going on? It's Doug Cunnington here, and I'm with my new friend, Ashley. How are you doing today? Hi, Doug. I'm good. I'm doing well. How are you? Really good. It's, um, I guess I always talk about the weather. It's really warm here in the Boulder County area in Denver. It's going to be like close to 100, but I'm staying inside. Yeah. So you emailed me a few weeks ago, and it was sort of a thank you email, which I appreciate getting because sometimes, you know, I'm just in my in my office here and I forget that some of the content actually helps people so you sent me an email you reached um, a pretty cool milestone and we're going to talk about it today so just right off the bat can you tell us like the milestone you hit and just tiny little bit about your site and then we'll back into the whole story here yeah, sure. So when I emailed you, I was emailing you about May results. And in May, I had hit about $550 a month. But for June, I actually hit just under $973 a month. And it was actually like $972 and I'm making $0.67 cents if we're being precise. Um, 
And traffic-wise, um, I get about 43,000 page through views in um, 34,000 sessions. And um, I have about 104 pieces of content on that site. Awesome. Very, very cool. So congratulations, not only hitting the $500 mark, but just like continuing to show pretty awesome growth, even when a lot of sites are maybe having issues with either traffic or revenue. So congrats on that, Ashley. Thank you. And let's back into the story here. So who are you? What do you do? And I'm curious how you got into affiliate marketing and niche sites and this sort of thing. Yeah, so my name is Ashley. I live in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. I'm currently a lawyer for my day job, and I work for a small law firm, and we practice corporate law. As far as the niche site journey, so it actually started back in 2013. Um, I was on a break from law school at the time, and I had like four or five weeks before school started back, and I guess it was just a rough semester or something because I started thinking, okay, let me look up how to make money online. Now, this was not the first time I had looked that up. I had tried other things in the past and nothing ever worked. And we don't have to really get into all the things I tried. But if you can think of it, I probably tried it at some point. But that summer, I found Pat Flynn from Smart Passive Income and then Spencer Hobbs from Niche Pursuits. And that was the first time I had heard about affiliate marketing. And either at that time or slightly before that time, they were both doing case studies where they were building a niche site, a niche site from scratch, and they were monetizing with affiliate marketing. And I thought that was a cool idea. It seemed like they were both genuine men who weren't just selling some sensational story about make $10,000 overnight. So I felt like it was something I could actually replicate. So in those like five weeks, I had decided that I would build a site. So I picked a niche, and I'm sure we'll get into niche selection later, but I picked a niche that I probably shouldn't have picked. I got hosting, domain, you know, everything you need to start a site. I wrote about nine pieces of content, and I put the site up. Now, I went back to school and didn't think about it anymore. I never installed analytics. I never checked Amazon to see if I had earned anything. If we fast forward a year later, I got an email from GoDaddy saying that my domain was about to expire, and I figured... I wasn't really sure what I was doing. I rushed that whole process. I picked a niche that I wasn't sure about. I didn't know how to do keyword research. So I just really assumed that it had failed. I assumed I didn't make any money. I didn't get any traffic. I let the domain expire and move on with life. The funny part of the story is after I found your content, I had to log back into my Amazon Associates account in 2018 was when I found you. And when I logged in, I had an unpaid balance of like $49.70. And I actually was confused. I had no idea where that money came from. So I was like, I haven't used this account in five years. Surprisingly, it was still there. But it, when I went back into my pay history, it had all come from like 2014. So it came from that crappy little site that I threw up in like a month. And what that did for me, although $50 or just under $50 is not really success, but it showed me that this was a viable business model right before I started my second site. And it just showed me that I should give it another go. So then I found your content in September of 2018. And I guess I was just, I had a spark again to search for how to make money online. I was on YouTube and I found, I was actually watching somebody else's video, but then yours came up as a suggested video. And I started watching a video or two. I was like, okay, this guy seems good. He, he seems to know what he's talking about. So I kept watching. And eventually one of your videos on keyword research 
came into a suggested video. And you were talking about the KGR. And to me, that was when I decided to make the second site. Because what I really struggled with the first time in 2013 was I couldn't really find a keyword research method that I could just grab onto and run with. I was confused by all the different methods out there of doing keyword research. And so for me, a data-driven way to do keyword research, it was something simple. I could just take it, plug everything into the formula and, and run with it. And so that was really what convinced me to start the site that I have now. Awesome, very cool. And I actually remember the exact case studies Pat and Spencer were getting into, that's when I, I found those as well. And then I was already finished with school by, for several years at that point. So I was able to you know, dabble and keep playing around with it. It's pretty cool that you logged back in and you found that you actually earned some money. Like, do you, do you think back like, oh shoot, I maybe should have, I mean, we're looking in the rear view mirror, that's not helpful, but yeah, just curious about that. Yeah, you know, it It really, at least, if it, it did nothing else, it was the catalyst for me starting another site. Um, but it, it is kind of in the back of my mind, well, dang, should I have just let it expire or should I have, I maybe could have built it a, up a little bit more and sold it or something, right? But like you said, because I did kind of pick a crappy niche for me, I don't know that I would have been able to stick with that site for long enough for it to grow very much, but maybe, you know, who knows? At this point, it's kind of just a what if or coulda, shoulda, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You never, it's not a good way to live to be looking back and thinking, hey, I should have done that, um, you know, seven years ago. So anyway, pretty cool. Pretty cool. So let's talk about niche selection a little bit. And I, I wasn't going to ask this right now, but since you mentioned it from back in the day and obviously the keyword golden ratio seem to influence your new niche. Can you just talk about like niche selection a little bit and how you chose the one that you ended up with? Yeah, so back in 2013, I chose a niche that was kind of more based on a product. And back then I was hearing a lot of different things on the internet about how you would make a site more so focused on product and just like a general topic. So it would be like best ballpoint pens dot com or something. And so my niche was like that where it was product centered. And the niche that I chose I knew nothing about. It was a struggle to write the nine articles that I wrote. And I had the idea that I actually my for my main site now back then, but I didn't do it because I thought it wasn't gonna be a good niche. So my theory, and I know people have varying opinions on this, but I think if you're a beginner, and by beginner I mean like never having building a site to success and whatever success could vary from person to person. But I think you should choose a passion, a hobby or a strong interest. And the reason why I say a strong interest and not just an interest, because interest can be fleeting. I might be interested in learning how to play tennis today. And then two months from now, I'm totally moved on to something else. I'm over tennis. So if you pick an interest, will you be able to stick with the site long enough if you're no longer interested in what, whatever it is that you chose? And um, I think there are people who can pick any niche. There are people who it doesn't matter if they're interested in it or not, and they will be able to like kind of persevere through those rough points. But as a beginner, I think we're trying to eliminate as many possible points of failure as you can. And not being able to stick with the niche long enough, I think is one of those points of failure. The other thing with niche selection that I don't think people talk about that often 
is the ability to edit content effectively. And I think this goes into outsourcing content more so than when you write it yourself, but I think it also plays in when you write it yourself. If you don't really know the topic and if you're not willing to learn the topic, when you get content back, you don't know if it's correct or not. So for, I can give you an example. I ordered a piece of content from a service, which I won't name, and they had given me good content before, but this particular piece of content was horrible. And it wasn't horrible because the grammar was wrong or the sentence structure was wrong. It was really because it was just littered with clearly erroneous statements throughout the content. And had I not been a member of the niche, I probably would have put that article on my site and then a true member of the niche would have come along, read it and immediately bounced because they would have knew I wasn't credible. So I think that is also something that goes along with niche selection that you could be publishing content that you think is quality, but really it's not because you don't know the topic well enough to be able to determine if it's good content or not. I agree 100% on actually both both your points. So nice, Ashley, on that. I think I'm just thinking me personally. I talk about beer and beer brewing a lot and someone that knows about those topics would immediately see like, hey, this actually doesn't even make any sense. It's maybe surface level um, information. And still you could tell someone is not familiar with whatever the topic is. So the other part, the first point that you made, just like having an interest. I mean, I think I think people need to know themselves. Like you said, some folks like the process, they can ignore a lot of the details, but generally like it does help a lot if you know something or maybe you have a, a sibling or spouse or friend that's into it, at least so you have a, a little more of a connection. So pretty cool. And that said, it sounds like you're you're into like your, your new niche. It's, it's something that you're fairly passionate about. Yeah, definitely. Okay, cool. So let's get into some of the other like nuts and bolts here. So as far as like keyword research, you mentioned keyword golden ratio. Can you talk about the approach um, sort of overall? And you know, it sounded like KGR was a good insight, but yeah, just talk about keyword research from your standpoint. Yeah, so I, I definitely use the KGR. Like I said, that was what really convinced me to start this second site. In 2013, keyword research it was kind of something that frustrated me because there were so many people saying so many different things. Some people were saying target high search volume, low competition. Then you had other people saying target low search volume, low competition, or, you know, long tails with like five words or six words. And I just couldn't find that one method that I could really run with. And so for me, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but for me, the KGR uncomplicated keyword research, it just made it simple for a beginner to just be able to execute. And you're not saying that I have to stick with that forever, but as a beginner, as a simple way to get traffic, it worked for me. And I pretty much used the KGR, I say probably like 95% of the keywords I targeted the first year were KGR keywords. And it didn't help me necessarily rank faster, but what the KGR did was it helped when I came out of the sandbox and I literally, it literally was like um, six months to the day when Google started actually recognizing that my site existed. It helped me move onto the first page of the search once I came out of the sandbox and starting to get traffic. So I definitely would suggest either the KGR or some other keyword research strategy that targets low competition keywords for the first year. So now I do still use the KGR, um, but I also target 
keywords that have a higher search volume as well. So what I actually do is even if it's, let's say, a thousand searches a month, I will still run it through the all in title. And that's just one of the factors that I consider is not the end all and be all of my keyword research. But if it meets that test, I will put it in the potentially past category. And then I analyze the first page of the SERPs and I look for, like if it's just all e-commerce sites, I typically won't target it. Or if it's all you know big sites like New York Times or The Wirecutter or Esquire or whatever, I will not target those that seem higher in competition on the first page. But if, if there are sites that are more like mine or younger than mine or a lot of user-generated content like Reddit or Quora, then I will target um, that keyword. So that's pretty much what I do now. And then the last thing I guess about keyword research is I think sometimes people underestimate low search volume keywords. And many times that volume that they say you're going to get, you get way more than that. So I have an example, the top page on my site, it was supposed to be targeting a keyword that said it got 210 searches a month. But really last month I got over 43, hundred page views from that one <laughs> keyword. So and there's all of my key, like the top 10 results are all examples of that. So I'm not saying that it works every time, but I think many times you do get more traffic than what you would think. So just because something says 10 searches a month, I would still target that keyword. Yep. And Justin, who I interviewed in the last couple months, did you hear his interview? Yes, I did. Mm -hmm. So one of his, uh, I think it's like zero searches per month and it's his top traffic page. Like I hear this over and over again and it's all the long tails and who knows what other factors are coming into play there. So do you target, I guess, what's the highest keyword search volume that you've approached um, now? Recently, it's... Um... I targeted a keyword that has like maybe just over 8,000, I think it may be 8,100 searches a month. So that's probably the highest one that I've intended to target. I think there might be another one that I accidentally targeted that was um, like 12,000 searches a month. But typically I try to stay in the range of now, like maybe between like 1,000 and 5,000, because I think I can rank for some of those a little more competitive terms, but it just takes more time. So with the KGR keywords I find now, I'm able to rank sometimes in weeks, but with those larger search volume keywords, it might take you know four or five months. Sure, gotcha. And I think um, I'm gonna turn the conversation around to myself for a second. I think I probably do that fairly often, but you know, just talking about the KGR, when I hear you know your story, it is exactly what the KGR is for, right? It simplifies some of the complicated mechanics for keyword research, and a lot of times people want to poke holes in the KGR, which is great, you know, if they're talking about me in any capacity, and they say, "Oh yeah, why don't we throw in a few more factors?" We could use a couple of these tools that cost about $100 per month to use. And all of a sudden, whatever they're talking about, it like loses 80% of the people. So if you already know how to do keyword research, sure, you, you don't need the KGR. You could do something else. But like for a beginner or maybe you need like some more traction in certain areas, KGR is a great uh, way to approach it. Like you said, with a data-driven a couple numbers in there, nothing too complicated, like you could see what to do. So there's no question there, but I just, I wanna emphasize what you said and then like layer it in. And you, you mentioned a couple other things too, like you'll find a keyword, 
you check it before you publish content on it. So I think a lot of times people maybe would make the mistake of publishing content where all the results are, say, YouTube videos. Well, obviously, if the top 20 results are YouTube videos, you're not going to be able to rank it with a piece of content of the written word. So anyway, let's move on. When did you start the site again? I think uh, maybe I didn't get the exact date. Yeah, so I started the site the beginning of October 2018. So it's about a year and nine months old now. Okay. And the content, you said you have over 100 articles. What's the... I think it's 104 articles right now. Cool. So how did you approach like launching and getting to that amount of content? Yeah, so I wrote, I say I wrote about 60% of the content and then 40% I've outsourced. I outsource both with services and through Upwork. But personally, I think I find the better writers with Upwork. I like the services. They're good for quick, quick content, but they're inconsistent. So sometimes you get good content back and other times you get trash. So that's pretty much how I have gone about creating the content. I have a couple of content tips. The first one really, I outline all the articles. So whether I'm writing it or I'm giving it to a writer, I outline the article and not like a brief outline. It's very detailed. I find that I just get back better quality, even from the writing services, when you tell people exactly what you're looking for. So I can kind of give a brief description of the outline. So it'll have like a title, have the keywords that I'm looking to target. And then I'll give like a one to two paragraph summary of just everything, my goals for that piece of content, whether it's review or informational, whether it's, you know, the overall goal, the tone of the article, the components of the review, if it's a review article, and then just the generally the person that, that well, I hope that this piece of content will, is meant to help. So, and then after I do the summary, I will actually create an outline. That outline includes like all the headers of that article. So if it's like best PowerPoint pins for college students, it will have like a brief introduction. It will have then like, what is the best PowerPoint pin for college students? And it would just be like a quick answer with the product that you're suggesting. And then it would be maybe the buyer's guide where you have the things that people should look for. And I had literally had all of those pieces in the outline so that there's no room for you know somebody to not know what I want. I think sometimes we assume that the writers have the same ideas that we do. If you were hiring me to write that article, I may have a totally different idea about what I think makes a good article on that topic than you do. So if you're not telling me exactly what you want, well, I'm just going to figure it out for myself. And I think sometimes the reason why we get back bad content is not because the writer is bad, it's because we didn't tell them what we wanted. Definitely. I think anytime you can reduce the number of decisions the freelancer has to make, you're going to end up with something better. They could focus on whatever you're hiring them for. As far as the length of the content, what are we looking at here? What's the breakdown? I say most of the content is probably between 1,500 words and 2,000 words. The informational content is usually shorter than the review content, but it varies. Like, I mean, I have a piece of content that is like 700 words on the site because 700 words was all that I needed to answer that particular question. There was no point trying to make it lengthier than it needed to be. But then I also think my largest article is about 4,300 words. So there is a range, but most of it is somewhere between like that 1,500 and 2,000 word range. Okay. And just curious, like, I guess this kind of goes back to niche selection a little bit, but 
Are there a lot of competitors, other affiliate sites or, you know, content type sites like this? Definitely. Yeah. There, there are not a lot of competitors and there are some pretty, pretty big competitors that also are in this space. It's actually a space where sometimes people tell you don't target because it can be harder to break through. But I mean, I think there are gaps within every niche, but depending on the level of competitiveness of that niche, it could take you longer to break through or you might be able to break through quicker. Cool. Very interesting. Yeah, I think, well, I, I mean, I agree just to thinking of like internet marketing. It's obviously a crowded niche, but there's always like new people popping up, always someone with a new take and just, you know, better content, new ideas and that sort of thing. All right, let's go on to link building a little bit. I'm sure I'll think of more content questions, but let's talk about link building and your approach. So the site's been around for a little while and I would expect some links, but what do you have going on over there? Yeah, so Doug, not much. I, I knew you were going to ask this question and I was thinking, really, there's nothing much for me to say. I guess I am one of those people who focus more on content than the link building. Now, the extent of my link building has been, I think when the site was around six months old, I did some blog comments for a couple of days and that's pretty much been it. You know, I know that I need to do link building and I definitely think that link building is important, but it's, it's kind of like the keyword research used to be for me. I haven't quite found the way of doing link building that I feel like doing, you know, reaching out to a hundred people for guest posts. It's just not fun. It doesn't sound like something that I want to do. I don't want to bother people. And so I think that has kind of held me back from doing more link building, but I am interested in Haro. I had thought about trying Haro last year and then I just never did, but you've had some more content on that recently and I'm interested in giving that a try for the future. Cool. Yeah. I'm interested to hear some of the processes we were chatting before we started recording, so yeah, I'll, I'll have more content on Haro coming out soon. Actually, sort of related to link building a little bit and just ranking. You mentioned the sandbox earlier and almost to the day, six months. So a lot of people ask, like, when did that six-month period start for your site? I counted it from the day I published the first article. And I think it was like October 1st or October 2nd. And literally, I think it was March 2nd all of a sudden there were some impressions from Google. So it was it was exactly six months. I definitely believe in the six month sandbox. And I also think there maybe is a 12 month sandbox because things started to really scale more for me traffic wise after my site hit a year. Okay. I, yeah, I think you're right both. And I, I was hoping you were gonna say like, yeah, after I started publishing, cause some people were thinking, hey, maybe I'll just like set up the site and then let it, you know, maybe just put the front page on there and let it sit, but it's really like active work on the site, publishing content, very cool. And then with the 12 month, was it the same sort of inflection where like, if you look at the analytics, there's no doubt that you got a lift? Yeah, I, I actually sent you some screenshots, but the first year, you can tell like after that year, it just starts to skyrocket more and one of the mistakes I made was I actually, I published too much informational content and not enough affiliate content, but I think that helped my traffic because once that first year kind of finished, the traffic just started to go up. And I think that's why my traffic numbers are high, as high as they are now. Gotcha. Very cool. And yeah, like I said, I knew I was going to think of more content questions. My mind's jumping all over the place with the content. What was the breakdown of info 
to review content? And then what was sort of the publishing schedule? You know, obviously you published a lot over time, but yeah, what did you come out of, out of the gates with? Yeah, so I guess this can kind of also go hand in hand with one of my mistakes because right off the bat, I I had this idea that I didn't want 100% like buyer intent content. And I think I had heard that maybe in 2013 or even recently that you don't want your site to be all review focused. So I was trying to keep things in a 50-50 ratio, but by my brilliant genius, I decided let's keep it below 50%. So the first 10 articles, I only had two um, affiliate posts and eight info. And that trend kind of continued over that first year. I think at the end of the year, I might've published like 62 or 63 articles and only 18 of those were affiliate based. So Consequently, I, I, my income didn't rise as high as my traffic did. So I definitely think that's one of the reasons why. Um, now, 104 articles, I think I have maybe about 38 or 39 affiliate um, articles now, and the rest are all informational. So I've tried to kind of try and bridge the gap, but I'm not quite at 50-50 yet. Cool. And then do you have ads or any sort of other monetization going on? Yeah, so actually the income for June was actually about 50% from affiliate and 50% from Mediavine ads. And I just got onto Mediavine at the end, very, very end, like the last couple of days of May. Um, so June was actually my first full month with Mediavine. Cool. So 50-50 split. Okay. Very nice. And were you running any ads um, prior to that at all? No, I wasn't. You know, I know I could have. Personally, for me... I decided that my goal was always to get on media, media Vine because I thought the earnings might be higher. I'm not sure if it is because I just got on there, but I don't really personally like a lot of ads. I know they help with revenue, but I didn't want to put ads on my site when I was getting next to no traffic just to earn a couple of dollars a month. I didn't think it was worth it to ruin the user experience. If I was going to take the user experience down, I wanted it to be because it was going to be worth my time to do so. So I waited until I hit 25,000 sessions to apply for ads. So I never had ads on the site before. Got it. And then with with Mediavine, is is that the one that really messes up the user experience where there's like, they like take over your site or am I thinking of a, of a different one? You know, I'm not sure. I think you could be thinking of any of them, honestly. I think, you know, of course there are ads everywhere. Does it really bother me? No, but there are some sites where it's just so intrusive. I don't think Mediavine is that intrusive. But what they do is like the first 90 days, they place all the ads and you can't mess with the placement. But after 90 days and you see like what's, I guess, the highest earning placements, you can tailor it back. Okay, got it. Obviously, I haven't done a ton, but yeah, I keep it pretty tight on the ad side. Like you said, I mean, I don't want to ruin the user experience and, you know, they have their place and it depends on what you're trying to do. So very cool. As far as your theme and maybe plugins that you're using. Can you, I didn't tell you I was going to ask this, but just curious, like, you know, what's your take and are there any essential plugins that you, you highly recommend or is it just kind of a commodity? It doesn't really matter. Um, so I do use a premium theme. I don't necessarily think you have to, especially if you're just starting out. I mean, anything is fine. A lot of times people aren't coming to your site the first three months anyway, so it doesn't really matter what your site looks like. I remember the first month I spent quite a bit of time tweaking the theme. It doesn't matter, you know? So I 
think sometimes premium things may have a bit more options with customization than just the free ones, but it really isn't that important. I think pick a thing that you like and kind of focus on the content more. Um, as far as plugins, you probably say I have too many uh, from what I've heard you say before. I kind of try to keep it a little leaner, but the main ones like the Google Analytics, um, I can't remember the name of it, but it's a Google Analytics plugin. I have that. I have one that blocks spam and security, I think is big. Even when my site was just starting out, I had like a, the WordFence um, plugin for security because for some reason people just attack your site. I, I've been getting emails recently about, you know, people trying to hack my site or whatever they've been trying to do to it. So I think having that is definitely key. Even if you think nobody can find your site, somebody can probably find it. So the security and the spam, I think it's, can't remember the name of the spam plugin, but a, a security plugin and a spam plugin, I think would be the most important. Okay, cool. And a little trick for the people trying to like brute force, like hack your site. The plugin I use basically changes the login URL. So people don't know where to try to hack your site. Um, and it only works if someone's like trying to brute force a username, password, all that stuff. And yeah, there's a few of them out there, but yeah, it just changes the URL to log in. So instead of domain.com slash wp-login.php, you could change it to whatever string you want. So they just don't know where to go. But What's the name of that plugin? I think it's like change login or something like that. I'll have, I'll have to look it up. I don't know it off the top of my head, but I mean, I think WordFence does uh, several other things as well where i usually just have that one and just deal deal with anything else but fingers crossed you know i haven't had any issues with my sites the other thing with the security it may not be something everybody thinks about but never use admin as like your username <laughs> never use admin because i notice as i'm tr people are trying to attack my site that's the first thing that they use they use admin and then they use the domain name so what if it's best powerpoint pen they'll use best powerpoint pen and as the username field and those are the first two that they try to get into and so mine is just something random with letters and numbers so you know they can try but it, at least gives another barrier for them to, to access your site. Perfect. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I use like a password manager, LastPass. So my passwords are like 20 characters long and, you know, they're unguessable, I think. So, all right. Let's see here. Any other like broad topics as far as like uh, content or keyword research before we start talking about maybe a couple mistakes that you've made? I guess with content, the one thing that I've been doing recently that has helped is I've been doing like a monthly content plan. So before I was pretty much just kind of picking something, publishing it. And some months I'd be, you know, published a lot of content. Other months I wouldn't publish anything. But basically, so like for July, I have a physical notebook that I actually handwrite this out on, not on the computer. And I keep it by my desk. And so it has like July 2020 content plan. And I go through and select how many articles I'm going to write that month based off of like whatever obligations, how busy I am. If I know I'm busy, I might only write three, but if I know I have more time, it might be six. So I make the plan for the month. I select the keywords and I select the articles for the writer as well, if I'm going to outsource any. And I just find that having your goals memorialized somewhere where you can see it every day, it makes me more productive than when I had no goal. Even if I don't hit that target every month, I do more than I would have done otherwise. 
cool. Yeah, I like the physical notebook stuff or some people like whiteboards, but yeah, you're kind of reminded of it and you're revisiting it all the time. Awesome. Well, how about mistakes? You mentioned a couple, so you know you can dive deeper into those or if there's some others that, I mean, we all make many mistakes, but yeah, what can we learn from? The first mistake I taught, touched on a little bit, it was not having enough affiliate content in the first place. So, you know, me thinking that my site was going to be spammy if I had all of this affiliate content prevented me from writing, I think, enough of it. And, you know, it makes common sense, but if you don't have as many buyer intent type articles, you're going to make less. That was the first one. The second one was really the pricing of the products that I was promoting. And again, it kind of seems like common sense. You, If you ask anybody, they would say, you know, higher price point equals higher commission. Of course, it makes sense, but it wasn't something that I thought about. I just was unknowingly targeting products that were like $35 or less with the little bit of affiliate content that I was producing. And it was really just, I didn't have a content plan. I was really just picking a keyword randomly. If I felt like writing on it, that's what I picked. And I was just trying to produce content. I wasn't thinking about, you know, the pricing of the products, although it makes sense. It just wasn't something I thought about. So I think as a beginner, sometimes even those same things may seem like everybody knows that you just don't think about it. So that in combination with not having enough affiliate content, I think is why my earnings have taken a long time to kind of catch up with the traffic. Gotcha. Is there a sweet spot for the price point that you arrived at at this point? Not really. You know, with my niche, I think there definitely are more lower price products than higher, but there are plenty of higher price or maybe not super high, but between like $100 and $400 products. So I have just tried to be more diligent when I select the keywords now to make sure that I am writing content that targets the higher price products more so than the lower price products. But I'll still do an article every now and then that just because it's valuable to the niche that the products aren't priced that high. Gotcha. All right, that makes sense. And any other insights or mistakes just over time? No, I think those are the two main ones. Just pay attention to the amount of affiliate content and then the pricing of the products. If you want to make money with affiliate you know, sales, if, you're, if your goal is ad-based, then my strategy kind of worked out for me because now I'm getting more traffic. So it really just depends on your goals. But if you're chasing affiliate sales, make sure you have the affiliate content to match. Perfect. And I like your, I mean, you're doing 50% from ads and 50% from affiliate. And I think that's great. It's a good, it's a good split. So you arrived at a, a good ratio, I think. As far as this site changing your life, do you have any specific things? I know it's sort of on a growth trajectory right now, but yeah, what has this site done for you? Um, I think the main thing that is done is the fact that like now I don't have to dip into my salary to pay for anything the site needs. So before I was setting aside a little bit of money every month to invest in the site, whatever, if I needed content or if I needed a plugin or something. Now, like recently, I need to upgrade my hosting and the site paid for the hosting itself. So that's really been the biggest impact. It hasn't really had a, a huge impact on my day to day yet. Okay. It makes complete sense. I mean, it's kind of a hobby. And as it's earning more, then I think it'll probably become something more, which leads me to the next question. Like, where do you see this going? Like, obviously you're, you're growing, you're enjoying it. Um, it's a hobby that's earning money now. So yeah, what are your sort of plans for the next, say, 
six, 12, 18 months? Where do you see it going? My goal with this site initially was to try and get to like $2,000 a month. And, you know, had the Amazon commission rate change not happened, I would have been close to that because um, my niche is one that got hit the hardest. It was went from eight to three. So, you know, it is what it is. It's life. You have to deal with it. But I think I could still get it to 2000 a month or close to that. And then I also want to build some other sites. So I had an idea for like an informational, a strictly informational domain. I just have to kind of have time to start executing on that. And then, I don't know, like I don't have any immediate plans like to try and quit my job or, you know, anything like that. But I've always just wanted to create additional income streams. And so what really attracted me to the affiliate marketing business model was the fact that you can create income streams that are a little bit more passive because with the job, I mean, you're always trading your time for money. That's never going to end. But if I can create something that will make money for me, even if I'm busy doing something else, that's just, it's a, something that's attractive to me. Awesome. Are you into the financial independence uh, movement and all that stuff? There's a lot of overlap with side hustlers and uh, professionals like us. You know, I hadn't been, you know, I hadn't even really heard of it about it that much until you started publishing content on it. And then I started looking into it a little bit more. It's definitely interesting. You know, I, I don't claim to know a lot about it, but I definitely enjoy learning more. Cool. Yeah, just cu curious because, well, and you've heard some of the content, but basically a lot of the financial independence folks end up, you know, getting into side hustles and there's just a huge overlap, but a lot of times we don't realize we're doing a lot of the same stuff and we're, we're all interested in the same sort of thing. So it's pretty cool. All right. Well, any other just tips? I mean, people are probably looking to you, Ashley, and they're thinking like, how could we replicate this? I want to be where Ashley is. So what advice can you give them? I think the main thing, uh, one of the main things is probably perseverance. I mean, my story was not, it isn't still one where, you know, I was quick to make like a thousand dollars a month in two months or something. It took me 11 months just to make $50 a month. So and $50 a month was my first goal. So it was really frustrating when it was like four months in a row in the forties. And I just couldn't, I think one of those months it was like 49 80 something. And I was like, are you serious? I can't reach $50 a month. So it was frustrating, you know, but I think a lot of people at that point, especially 11 months in almost a year in people had the thoughts of, well, oh, this doesn't work. I'm going to quit. But what I was thinking was, what am I missing? What mistakes am I making? And that's how I figured out those mistakes that I was making. And I think with like niche sites and then also with life, sometimes perseverance is the difference between like being successful and not being successful. A lot of times the people who are successful aren't smarter. They aren't necessarily better than you, but they've persevered longer than the person who decided to quit because it got too rough. So I think if you can stick with it, don't definitely don't quit the first year. I think quitting the first year is a mistake because, because of the sandboxes, six, 12 months, whatever they are, I've gotten the most growth after that rough period. So about 13, 14 months in is when things really started to scale for me. So if you're at that point where it's a little frustrating and you feel like maybe this isn't working and you're thinking about quitting, I challenge you just to push maybe three to six more months because I think you'll be pleasantly surprised that things start to scale in the positive direction. Well said. Right, well, you are off the radar. You're under the radar. People can't follow along with you anywhere, right? So. You are just around a little bit, but no one can, no one can find you. Is that, is that right? 
Uh, somewhat. I mean, I'm definitely a little off the radar. Um, I guess if you're looking to find me the best place, I've been trying to be in your, um, the chat in your live streams on Friday more often. So that would probably be the best place to find me. Okay, cool. So people should subscribe to the YouTube channel and come to the live streams. That's a good plug, Ashley. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today. Really appreciate it. And perhaps we can get an update in the future if things keep uh, progressing and, and growing for you. Thanks a lot. Definitely. Thanks for having me. course thanks a lot to Ashley appreciate her taking the time out please do send me an email feedback at doug.show if you have any follow-up questions for Ashley she said she'd be willing to come back on and, and chat with us tell us some more information learn a little bit more it was great talking to you Ashley really appreciate it I know you listen to the show and I think I'm gonna I'm gonna end it early today so Everybody enjoy the rest of your day. We'll catch you on the next episode.